The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up. We gather for ordered worship, the liturgy, music, and homily upon this Bach experience, Bach Cantata Sunday, are offered in the praise of God for our gathered community here within Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership now and later around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and your material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership and service in our midst. And as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
may we pray together. O God, you declare your almighty power, chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. A lesson from the prophet Jeremiah, chapters 32, verses 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of the Zedekiah of Judah was the eighteenth year of the Nebuchadrezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where the king Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Zedekiah had said, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, I am going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. King Zedekiah of Judah shall not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, see him eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I attend to him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you, you shall not succeed? Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of my uncle Shalom, is going to come to see you and say, By my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field at, that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, seventeen shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah. In the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, in their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both is sealed, both is sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in the earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Please join me in reading responsively verses from Psalm 91 with the Antiphon.
You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, you will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, or the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Those who love, I will will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Please stand as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the gospel. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Glory to you, O Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, 
They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. In music and in word, again this Lord's Day, we worship Almighty God and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. For ten years now, in this manner, twice a term, we have sought to preach the good news and offer the gift of faith, a gift now offered to you, the hearer, you, the listener, by way of the confluence of music and word, chorus and sermon, Bach and experience. To our knowledge, this sort of offering is sui generis, it is unique. A woman, say, listening today in southern New Hampshire, struggling to interpret the hard news of this season and this week from North Carolina and Washington State, may hear us and may hear the offering of faith. Faith in the recognition of the wonder of creation, God the Creator, faith in a beginning step alongside the promise of baptism, God the Redeemer, faith to start in the sudden exclamation by spirit, I exist here, now, God the Sustainer. Faith is a gift. In the gift of faith, we find the courage to face death. Death makes us mortal. Facing death makes us human. In the gift of faith, we find the courage to face life, life in all its turmoil, cacophony, and difficulty, to take another step. That may be all our listener in southern New Hampshire needs from the gift of faith today, as Sunday morning slips into Sunday afternoon and the burdens of the rest of the day and the week to come. A sense of love at the margins, a sense of possibility, though far off, a sense of promise, hidden but real, Baptism is a sign of the gift of faith, and faith is the courage to face death and life, to take another step, to walk ahead into the dark. Bach sings faith, and Jeremiah speaks faith, and we attempt to weave the two together. Today's cantata was composed by Bach for the Feast of St. John, observed in Leipzig on June 24th, 1724. The date makes Cantata 7 the third work composed in Bach's second full cycle of cantatas for the church year. As we have come to expect from this particular cycle, many of these cantatas are closely connected to their chorale tunes, these tunes often appearing in the soprano part on long tones, directing and connecting the listener to the stories and teachings of the great hymns of the faith. Cantata 7 numbers among the important chorale cantatas of this cycle and draws compositional inspiration from Martin Luther's 1541 hymn, Christ Our Lord Came to the Jordan. Of the cantata's seven movements, the first and last movements sung by the choir take their text directly from Luther, while the inner solo movements are paraphrased from Luther's inner verses and are, are attributed to Bach himself. The story of John the baptizer and of Jesus' baptism is found in the third, and the third chapters of Matthew and Luke, 
and right away in the first chapters of Mark and John. These accounts mark the beginning of Christ's ministry on earth and lead ultimately to his passion and resurrection. Each of the four accounts bears the familiar image of imagery of water, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the voice of God from the opened heavens declaring pride and pleasure in his only Son. When viewed together, the fullness of the Trinity is richly depicted in the baptism story, and Christian teaching through these symbols is a clear public anointing and forecast of the teachings and purposes of Jesus in his earthly ministry. If we look back just a few verses, the focus on John, the baptizer, we find similarities in these accounts as well. John is depicted as something of a wild ruffian whose prophecies excite and call his audience to prepare for the one who will come and will purify the world by fire. This is the important connection for Bach as he sets out to write his musical sermon for the day. Water imagery abounds throughout the cantata, bubbling, rippling, even crashing in what Craig Smith of Emmanuel Music once called Bach's La Mer. Throughout the cantata, the purity and clarity of the water is tinged and colored by the awareness that Jesus' blood, that is to say, his passion, transforms the water with the purifying zeal of the refiner's fire. Let's take a closer look. The cantata opens with a monumental, even epic, setting of the first verse of Luther's hymn. You'll find the chorale tune in long notes, not in the soprano part, but submerged in the tenor part with old-style polyphony in the other four parts all around. The vocal parts considered alone proceed with an austerity that reminds the listener to look up from the Jordan to the cross. Musically, the remarkable material here is the freely composed instrumental ritornelli that open, close, and punctuate each of the nine phrases of the chorale tune. Our Marsh Chapel program annotator, Brett Kostrevsky, reminds us that Jesus' arrival at the Jordan for baptism marks the onset of his adult ministry, and Baroque conventions provide a stately French overture with dotted and regal rhythms for any auspicious arrival. And so the cantata opens with strong French overture rhythms in the upper strings and oboes in a harmonic sequence that outlines the austere modal colors of the chorale tune. But one immediately hears the Jordan lapping at the hem of Jesus's garment in the cello and bass figurations that support the upper material. This short and strict two-bar phrase freezes harmonically as the violin soloist's second theme figurations depict more churning of the purifying Jordan waters. The cello's original motive here is transferred to the upper supporting strings, further suspending progress. The overall effect is one of churning, expectation, and even foreboding. The three arias that comprise the corpus of the cantata paraphrase the inner verse of Luther's hymn. In the first, sung with preparator, without preparatory restative, the bass calls every believer to baptism, not with water alone, but also fortified by the word and the spirit. One imagines a good Methodist baptism in the sprinkling heard in the cheerful accompaniment played by the cello and the organ. The central tenor recitative and aria connect all of the gospel images with fiery virtuosity on full display, 
from two solo violins and the bravura of the tenor part. The words of God in the moment of Jesus' baptism are sung in the second half of the tenor restative as if to provide full charge for the purification to come. The zeal of the aria's opening imagery, however, softens at the mention of the dove. You remember in the story, the presence of the Holy Spirit is signified or hidden in the embodiment of uh, the appearance of a dove. And uh, German speakers will know this, but maybe not everybody here does. The word for baptism in German is taufe, T-A-U-F-E, and the word for dove is taube, T-A-U-B-E. So one letter apart, so listen carefully. The bass returns for a restative that reminds us of Jesus' call for his disciples to teach and baptize throughout the world. The words of Jesus are set in the manner that presages Bach's musical treatment of the words of Jesus in the Matthew Passion with strings haloing the text that exists in red letters in most of our Bibles. The final aria for alto soloist begins notably without any introduction. To me, this underscores both the connection to Jesus' commandment, which precedes the aria, but also creates a greater sense of urgency for the deliverance of this text. The message here is a direct exhortation of the purifying power of faith and baptism. The final movement is a standard four-part chorale, but the amount of theology packed into this verse is worth noting. Here Luther connects everything. Original sin and our own inheritance of sin, the redemptive grace of Christ's passion, all forged by the purifying power of personal devotion, faith, and taufa, baptism. The beauty of the music this morning is itself a sort of baptism. We sometimes long to take a spiritual shower, to bathe ourselves in the living waters of grace and faith, hope and life and love. Especially, it might be stressed on any college campus today, the need for spiritual cleansing in the midst of subcultural murkiness is continual. We need both judgment and mercy, both honesty and kindness, both prophetic upbraid and parabolic uplift, and we get them, thanks be to God, in Jeremiah and in Luke. But look, this week, they come upside down in a stunning reversal. Kindness and gentle hope are the hallmarks of our passage from Jeremiah, while wrath and hellfire explode out of Luke. Listen again to the voice of the prophet, one of the great strange voices in all of history and life, one of the great strange voices in all of holy writ, Jeremiah. All is lost in Judah as Jeremiah addresses Zedekiah the king. You will be a slave in Babylon, King Zedekiah. You will be given into the hand of your sworn mortal enemy, and so too will be the fate of your city, your temple, your people, your country, king. Zedekiah. But, nonetheless, and yet, these are resurrection words, but, nonetheless, nevertheless, still, even so. Jeremiah puts his money where his mouth is. In this, our season of cultural demise and decay across our country, we benefit from the harsh challenge of Luke, and we benefit from the hopeful promise in Jeremiah. You see, as we said some weeks ago, there is more Luke in Jeremiah than at first you think, and there is more Jeremiah in Luke than at first you think. 
Sin is not doing concrete deeds of generous kindness. Of all the Gospels, St. Luke most emphasizes this in the Sermon on the Plain, in the wording of the Lord's Prayer, in the parables of sower, Samaritan, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, dishonest steward, guest to the wedding banquet, the ten healed lepers. In the communal interest extended to Samaritans, those of different ethnic and religious background, to women, those whom tradition has marginalized, to the poor, those left forgotten in transaction and, and acquisition, and to the lepers, those ritually and culturally excluded. To read Luke is to be given eyes to see by contrast abroad in America today an emerging culture of denigration, denigration of Im immigrants, denigration of Muslims, denigration of Mexicans, and to see and to weep. It is not enough, though it is true enough, to blame this almost exclusively on one particular candidate and one particular party. It is not enough, though it is true enough, to blame this almost exclusively on one particular candidate and one particular party. No, the mirror is held up for all of us, for all of us in some measure have contributed to a culture that is uncultured, a rhetoric that is rancorous, a politics that is impolitic, an increasingly uncivil civil society, a rejection of hard-won experience and preparation in favor of careless entertainment and tomfoolery, a preference for cruelty over beauty, and a robust willingness to throw away hundreds of years of painstakingly crafted institutional commitments and social norms. You can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time, said Lincoln. Will Lincoln's proverb hold in our time? You may well hope so, though you may well doubt so. Finally, as Jeremiah looks upon Zedekiah, we confess, we get the leaders we deserve. More personally, in the Methodist tradition which built Boston University, other than worship and the study of scripture, the most cherished practice of faith is tithing, annually giving away 10% of what you earn. The reason for the centrality of tithing, today sadly honored largely in the breach even in Methodism now to our shame, is set for us in today's harsh parable of Lazarus and Dives, the, the harrowing horror of what it means to forget the needs of the poor. Such forgetfulness is a persistent threat in the heart of all of human life, but is especially challenging for those who have much and so are sheltered routinely from the anxiety of poverty, the hurt of exclusion, the pain of hunger, and the despair of lack and loss. Sin is the unwillingness on a weekly basis to practice generous kindness to tithe. Luke reminds us so. And Jeremiah, now that his beloved country is in ruins, are we beginning across our own cultural landscape this fall to catch a glimpse of his woe? Jeremiah does something great. Remember, 
The city is burned, the temple is wrecked, the population is slaughtered or in chains, and the nation is destroyed, soon to spend two generations in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, where to sit down and weep as tormentors mock, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. But Jeremiah buys a plot of land. One day, a long time from now, he muses and prays, there will be some manner of restoration. I cannot see it. I cannot hear it. I cannot prove it. Sometimes I cannot even believe it. But hoping against hope, I will buy some land, and someday somebody, somehow, will use it. This is faith, to plant trees under which you will not sleep, to build churches in which you will not worship, to create schools in which you will not study, to teach students whose futures you will never know, to buy land which you will not till. But someone will, or at least that is your hope. That is why, as darkness is falling across a confused and frightened and benighted land, ours today, you have done some things this fall. You offered a morning prayer. Good for you. You sent a check to support some leader or candidate. Good for you. You went and volunteered to make contacts and calls on his or her behalf. Good for you. You spoke up and spoke out regardless of the fan mail, family disdain, and other costs. You did something. Good for you. Will it make a difference? It may not. But it does make a difference for you, if for no one else. So go and buy your little plot of land. James Weldon Johnson gave us our marching orders in words both of challenge and of hope words that recognize straight up what real harm can and has befallen people, especially his own people, and words that cling even desperately to a future, a future hope, something hoped for but not seen, and ever subject to neglect, amnesia, rejection, and defeat. Marsh Chapel's own Max Miller gave us our accompaniment as well, our marching beat in music both of challenge and of hope, a hymnic cadence mindful of harm and aware of hope. May Johnson's words and Miller's music, their Jeremiah 32, their Luke 16, guide us forward. Behold a broken world, we pray, where want and war increase, and grant us, Lord, in this our day, the ancient dream of peace. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who hast brought us thus far along the way, Thou who hast by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand, true to our God, true to our native land. Bring, Lord, your better world to birth, your kingdom's loves, kingdom love's domain, where peace with God and peace on earth and peace eternal reign. Amen.
Menschenkinder, 
was Gott selbst, Gott selbst, was Gott selbst die Tafel heißt, wirklich wird ihr Menschenkinder, ihr Menschenkinder, was Gott selbst, was Gott selbst die Taufe heißt.
Thank you. 
In an hour of liturgy come Sunday, there are moments of prayer, praise, hymn, word, blessing, and communion with the saints on earth and in heaven. We are so grateful to the Marsh Chapel Choir and Collegium and his Dr. Scott Ellen Jarrett for leading us through Bach in prayer, praise, hymn, word, and blessing, and for helping us join for a single moment of true communion with the saints above. Let's offer our appreciation for their leadership. and welcome again. I have a few other announcements this morning. First, I invite you to get to know the chapel a bit better and to get your neighbor to know your neighbors a bit better by signing into the red pads that are in the center of each pew or for emailing us at chapel.bu.edu. I'd like to draw your attention to two events coming up this week. First, the Lorelei concert taking place on two dates next weekend. Um, Lorelei is Marsh Chapel's ensemble and re residence, and they're hosting their first concert of this season, um, including uh, works by Hildegard von Bingen, one of my favorites. Um, you should visit lorelaiensemble.com to purchase tickets. Also, I'd like to um, point your attention to the Women's Gathering, which will be happening Sunday, October 16th right after worship from 1230 to 2 at the home of Jan Hill. Um, the guest speaker will be Professor Virginia Sapira, the former dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, who now teaches political science. She will speak about issues concerning the presidential election. I'd especially like to invite all the ladies who are participating in our Sunday book study this semester, as it will be right on topic. For all other opportunities and events, please check out our website, bu.edu chapel, where there's also an opportunity for online giving. And now as the ushers come forward to collect our tithes and our offerings, let us remember that it is a joy and a discipline to be a giver.
Dear gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to contribute to your work. We realize it is truly a blessing to be a giver. We hope that these offerings will help build your community and spread your light. You are all loving and all forgiving, and for that we thank you. We pray that these offerings meet every need here. Amen. pause to receive the benediction, but as we do, one of the great joys of Sunday morning is that you just do not know who will attend worship come Sunday. We have a dear couple longtime leaders in our congregation, Alice Dekanik and Yuri Koskinen, who are here, and they've come all the way from the west coast of Canada, where they now dwell and teach and live. They're here over to my left, and when you have a moment following the benediction, Give them a hug and welcome them back to dear old Boston. Alice Irie, welcome. May the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen.